I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Design in tech is a collaborative process. Angela Guzman, designer and entrepreneur based out of Silicon Valley, explained how designers can work together to create unified designs. We talked about her work designing the first set of Apple emoji in 2008. Back then, emoji were still in the early days and there were challenges in designing small icons. Angela also explained what diversity and inclusion in design means. At the end, we talked about different areas of design that people in tech can focus on and about leadership positions. Before we continue with the interview, I wanted to tell you that I launched a new podcast. It's called The Five Minute Mentor. In this podcast, you'll hear advice from prominent engineers, entrepreneurs, artists, and more in five minutes or less. Check it out by going to mentors.fm or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Five Minute Mentor. Thank you. Angela Guzman, designer and entrepreneur based out of Silicon Valley, is joining us today. Angela, welcome to the show. Hi, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. First, I want to begin by talking about your experience at Apple. You were one of the original designers that worked in the first set of Apple Emoji back in 2008. We use Emoji a lot and they're, they're super popular right now. But I want to understand what the context was back in 2008. So this is, I believe, a year after the iPhone had just come out. Can you give some context on what the panorama was like. Yeah, so back in 2008, before I started working on this awesome project, the iPhone had just launched the year before. So it was very much part of, you know, the excitement of tech and what was happening in Silicon Valley. But not a lot of people had heard about the emoji actually started in Japan in the 90s. And they were really popular in Japanese culture, but they never really went beyond uh, at a more like a global scale. So when I started on this project, it was the first time I had heard the word emoji. And I had to ask people what it was all about and what did that mean. But yeah, it was really fascinating because it was just the beginning, I would say, when this type of visual communication started to emerge at a global scale. Can you talk about, you know, some examples of the emoji that you designed? Yeah. So some of the emoji that I made back then were uh, the party popper, so that gold cone with confetti inside, the set of hearts, the more holiday-based emoji like the pumpkin, the Christmas tree, a lot of the dresses and shoes and clothing items, some of the fruits and vegetables and other dishes, some of the animals but not a whole lot of them. <laughs> and the list can go on and on because we, my mentor and I made a handful of them at the time. And in one blog post that you wrote titled The Making of Apple's Emoji, How Designing These Tiny Icons Changed My Life, you talk a lot about your mentor, Raymond Sepulveda, I believe his name is, and how you know he took on this project and taught you how to design Apple-styled icons. At this time, from your experience, what does this entail, the fact that you are you know, designing Apple-style icons. What did it mean to work with him as a mentor or...? Um... Yeah, sort of what, what he was teaching you because from reading your article, I get the sense that you're trying to, you know, design as a team and it has to look unified and like it's coming basically from, you know, one person. But I'm not sure how 
true this is. Yeah, definitely. So one of our main goals uh, when we started this project was to make it seem like each emoji was made by a single individual. So they had to be visually unified and sort of have that same styling that we were trying to capture. So that meant sitting side by side, working very closely, checking in with one another. And as his mentee, I had to learn a lot on the spot. Um, so he was an incredible teacher, I would say, of the craft, but also someone that together we were able to achieve those goals that we set out at the beginning. In terms of those things that you talk about, like the elements of making it visually unified, what does this mean specifically? Is it, for example, like, oh, the width of the line, like some sort of, you know, settings? Can you talk a bit about some characteristics that you know, can be taught. Yeah, definitely. So um, some of the obvious ones, I would say, is just kind of setting that styling, the visual styling. So for example, you sort of described the outline structure of each emoji or how big should they be within the canvas size of, of each box, let's say, but also the types of colors and how do we create shadows and, and that shiny look and feel. We were basing a lot of the initial concepts around the dock that you find on a laptop, for example. And each of those icons is very glossy and shiny, almost like eye candy, you could say. <laughs> and so our goal was to rely on that same principle to make each one look really shiny and glossy, which was very different at the time for any type of emoji. Emojis back in Japan were more pixelated a little bit based on their screen sizes and, and what the screens offered at the time. So we were trying to really make these look more modern, more Apple-like. But again, it had to follow certain qualities so that both of us could achieve that look and feel. So it wasn't just the colors. It could also talk about how do we render, you know, a set of teeth so that we can use the same teeth on another emoji. Or how do we do the fruits and vegetables once they're placed side by side on the keyboard to make sure that it all looked like it was part of a family of icons. So yeah, those were some of the details that we were focusing on. And would you say that, that some things are you know, thought about a lot beforehand, like, for example, the color palette, or is it flexible enough that, you know, colors can be added on the go? It was very flexible because we had quite a bit of emoji to cover in a short period of time. But I think in general, even though it was sometimes not even spoken rules that we said, it was just very apparent to us what made sense and what didn't make sense as a set. But not oftentimes, I would say, but sometimes you can, we had to go back and sort of tweak an emoji here and there. Possibly, I'm just making this one up, not necessarily how it happened, but let's say you were drawing the cyclist and later on you were drawing another human form. So you sort of reference the old one, but then you might tweak the new one and vice versa as time passed on. Earlier you talk about how one of the components was the size of the icon. What was the size like approximately? At this point in time, I don't remember. <laughs> but roughly, do you have a range of like, okay, it wasn't, I know definitely wasn't bigger than this, just to get an oh, idea. Oh gosh, no, it was very small. Like they were, <laughs> the iPhone, that second iPhone when they launched the screen resolution was very low compared to what we have today. I just remember like if you had to squint in your eyes, it had to look good enough at that tiny, tiny size. I just can't remember right now how big. Okay. And let's talk a bit about the challenges of designing something really small. Like earlier you bring up the example of the cyclist or you're also talking about teeth. What are some of the challenges of designing such a small icon? 
Yeah, so because the pixel resolution of screens were so much different then than they are today, you had to account for how close each color was placed inside a pixel, basically. I was looking literally at pixels on the screen off many times in the process of making these emoji. So sometimes if you had a strong difference in color, like on a tooth, like white to yellow or white to another color, basically, if you put them too close together and you zoom out to the actual size that they would render in, it would just be a mess. Like a, imagine oil painting and it's just kind of the paint running into one another. So you had to make sure that when you zoomed out, the definition was there that things weren't colliding with one another, things meaning color. Otherwise you get like a muddy <laughs> version of an illustration. So sometimes you had to tweak things at the pixel size, maybe, you know, move it one pixel over to make sure that it had a nice clean definition. One other thing I want to talk about, you know, related to, you know, designing emoji is, you know, this whole topic of emoji are being used across the world. And now, you know, we need to consider, you know, how it can be interpreted. And it's just this whole component of diversity and inclusion in design. So I'm curious about your opinion of what does diversity and inclusion mean when designing, for example, emoji, or it can be anything else. Yeah, I mean, it's been a fascinating trend and also progress and evolution to see from afar. Emoji have evolved and grown and expanded and are accounting for more options. When I worked on the project, it was a much smaller set, and we were sort of focusing on uh, very specific objects and things that had already been designed, let's say, in other cultures, like in Japan. So it's been really cool to watch as the years have passed, how much it has evolved. So in my opinion, and this is again my personal opinion, I'm not speaking on behalf of anyone here, <laughs> and I also haven't worked on this for many, many years at this point, but I'm excited to see how encompassing they are, how open they are to, you know, diversifying the sets, not just like gender and those kinds of qualities, but also cultural food dishes, for example, or other objects that represent different parts of the world. So to me, that's really cool. And even the color that you end up, you know, choosing for the emoji can, should be taken into account also, right? Just in a sense that you cannot just, you know, pick any color when you're, you know, designing an emoji, you might need to, you know, look into meanings of color between different cultures. Yeah, I would say that a good designer in general, not just when you're making emoji, should be very mindful of how these details will play out in the real world. So doing a little bit of research, you know, really goes a long ways for sure. I want to talk now about, you know, leadership, particularly in the design space. So we've been talking earlier about, you know, designing emoji and you worked on this when you were an intern at Apple. Later, you went on to take on a design lead role, I believe, at, at Google. Can you talk a bit about what it means to be a design lead? Yeah, that's a really awesome question because I think the answer sort of varies um, from individual to individual. And I'm always fascinated to ask other leads and other people that are interested in those career paths what they think of that space and that role. In my case, that transition happened as I was growing in my career and I had gotten enough, I think, experience from the craft and, and sort of the process of being a designer and and collaborating with a lot of folks. But once I got to Google, it was really the first time that I was doing a leadership role. And it was really fascinating because I always wanted to learn 
the skills that sort of go into these types of situations. So being a first-time manager was really interesting. You oftentimes, as, as the person, not the manager, but the part of the team, you don't really realize what goes behind the scenes, sort of what is the role of a manager? How do you grow a team? How do you make sure that people are doing well, that they're happy with the process and the work and the collaboration overall? But also, how do you pair people together to complement one another when an individual might be really strong in one area and somebody else might be strong in a different area? How do you pair them together? And also, how do you stay in tune <laughs> with what is uh, the job at hand? How do you deliver great work? How do you collaborate with larger teams, larger organizations, cross-functionally even? So to me, it was a fascinating time that I was very happy and excited to take on. And it taught me not just about myself, but also working with people from a different side. And yeah, I think that was a really great experience so far in my career and one that I, to this day, look back on now that I'm starting sort of my own company and basing a lot of those learnings on how I move forward in this new space that I'm in. And you've been working specifically in the tech space for several years. What are the different kinds of design that you have seen that people can work on? Just to get an idea of, you know, types of, of roles like we talked about designing emoji. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are other things? There's a lot of roles, actually. And that to me is probably my favorite question because so often people don't realize the options that there are out there. But as a designer, you can choose inside of the tech space, that is. You can choose between being a visual designer. That's somebody who focuses a lot on how something looks like iconography or the color palettes or the types of fonts or typography that you use in the layouts. You can also work inside user experience, which, you know, that's kind of the larger umbrella. But to me, a UX designer is possibly someone who focuses on the navigation. How do you enter an application? How do you exit that application? What happens in the space, kind of the architecture of, of the design? There's also folks who focus on motion design. So that's animations, transitions, those magical tiny moments that happened that are very visually immersive. And also there's a lot of other things within that design umbrella that aren't necessarily just design. You have people that work as UX writers, for example. And I, although they're not 100% designers, I feel like because they work so closely with us, They're almost an extension of the design family. They're folks that will really work with you on writing the, you know, the copy of the page or the layout of the application. And so the words really matter in this case, <laughs> along with any visual support components. And then you also have folks that are more interested in prototyping. So how it's kind of a blend of engineering and design really building these experiences to work as though they were in a real situation. And what other roles did I think about? And of course, you have people who are kind of a hybrid of all of these. So they're able to compose a lot of things on their own with the help of other folks on the team as well. But yeah, the array of disciplines is wide. It also depends on the team. Sometimes you have lots of individual people focusing on different facets, while in some teams it's kind of everybody does everything. So it just depends. But yeah, it's really, really fascinating. Yeah, thank you. Those were a lot of, you know, great options that you talked about. Now I want to talk more in general about art and design. I saw you studied industrial design in college and later on you studied graphic design. But I had a question in terms of industrial design because I know it focuses a lot of designing a product that's going to be mass produced. 
So I wanted to ask you, you know, in your opinion, what are, you know, some of the challenges when you are, you know, thinking of designing something that's going to be mass produced? Yeah, from the angle of industrial design, I'm sure the things that cross your mind are quite different than, say, software products, that is, things on the screen or things on a device that can be easily updated, not physically updated, that is. So from the hardware standpoint, you probably have to account for lots of details like the manufacturing pipeline. How long does it take to produce this? Once you say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, you have to sort of stick to it. Otherwise, the change can be very expensive financially, but also with time. You can't just swap a button like you can on a software product and expect it to happen overnight. So from the angle of UX design, the, the space that I'm in, um, the mass production is more like I see it more as like how many people does this product reach because you're not physically making things like in a factory setting you're sort of making it on your computer on in your office and with the help of a lot of folks that goes out into the world and it launches so one of the things that I think happens in that process is you have to be very certain that what you're about to ship or launch is bug-free or at least as much as you can have it be bug-free so that involves a lot of testing beforehand a whole process of check and balances to make sure that everything was done correctly and it's not going to break depending on different um, environments that it's being exposed to and then also having a quick system of how to resolve for problems that you know once it's out there that you can address and fix on a timely fashion. And then there's also the whole aspect of supporting like different languages. When you think about the copy, what I was saying earlier with UX writers, one of the tricks is also like keeping in mind, how is this going to look if you have a language that reads from right to left or left to right, because that will change your UI. And so you have to account for all these localization kind of hurdles in some ways. But yeah, I can go on and on about all these little details, but I think just things that are popping into my mind right now, those are some of the, what you're describing as, you know, designing at scale, some of those issues. That's a good point because when I initially asked this question, I was focusing more on the, you know, tangible products, but you're right. I mean, software, you know, is reaching a lot of people and it's interesting how, you know, if something doesn't work out, you can, you know, change the button or put it in a different location and, you know, tweak it on the go, which is an interesting contrast with working with hardware and physical objects. Now I want to talk about sort of your trajectory in art and design. I don't know if you remember some of the early examples of designs that you did when you were growing up. Yeah, I think they were probably more geared towards the world of art <laughs> as opposed to design. So growing up, I always loved drawing. It was sort of my mode of communication with a lot of people, especially when I was learning English, because I didn't speak the language, I relied on drawing stick figures <laughs> to sort of explain my thoughts. But as I became more interested in, in taking art classes in high school, I really started to fall in love with that whole space of creativity and visual creativity. And one of my sisters actually was going to art school when I was very young. And so that's how I got early exposure to the world of design. And in watching her creating her models, her blueprints, I became fascinated so much so that I wanted to become an architect when I got to college. And so when I look back, I think having that early exposure to this world of design and art was essential in kind of figuring out what I wanted to do once I graduated from high school. And although I never went into the architecture path, I think that really shaped 
what I was about to do after going through college. So I don't know if that answers your question, but to me, I think even though some people make the distinction between art and design, at the core, it's a creative process that unifies both of them. Yes, definitely. And what were some of your main inspirations when you were growing up? Did you have certain artists that you liked a lot? Hmm, that's a good question. So <laughs> I am horrible with names. <laughs> well, you can describe the, the visuals, the kind of art that you were really interested in I mean when I was like late middle school very early high school I used to love like Degas just because my French teacher would talk a lot about him and I would see the paintings and the books and the subject matter and the colors just fascinated me I'm very much attracted to bright colors like pastels that are bright and so I think that's why I liked his work but also artists and painters that were very detailed oriented almost like photorealistic I used to enjoy a lot of that and especially folks that use like color pencils to draw and things that made them look like they were a photograph I used to um, spend a lot of time trying to figure out how they did that but then when it was like about making things by hand I took a bit of pottery at some point but I can't recall exactly what what drew me into that space but basically just the 3d object version of design I was fascinated by making things in real form in real life as well but yeah I think those were some of my influences and of course my art teachers whatever they said or exposed me to was also very instrumental. Did you find yourself that you were imitating some artists through your you know, process when you were learning the craft? Oh yeah, for sure. I think like mimicry <laughs> is your best educational experience when you're experimenting. Otherwise, you don't really know what you're aiming for if you don't have a very clear vision, I think. You sort of have to learn t the rules before you can break the rules is what one of my art professors used to say. But it also allowed me to break away from those things and just kind of experiment on my own but yeah I used to love looking at art books and just trying to draw from that as well yes that's interesting because that's one thing I see a lot when I go to museums and I read about the artist is they began imitating somebody else and then eventually they found their own voice their own way of expressing mm -hmm. yeah no for sure yeah well Angela thank you for coming on the show it's been a real treat talking to you oh thank you no I've been very excited for this opportunities I'm very thankful for the invitation mm -hmm.